Welcome to The Airwave, West Yorkshire Internal Medicine Teaching Collaborative Podcasts, in association with Airedale General Hospital and Bradford Royal Infirmary, a Chief Registrar Programme Initiative. Today we'll be talking about the PACES examination, your final step in completing your membership of the Royal College of Physicians. We'll have a couple of doctors talking about their experience of sitting the examination, about their tips and tricks for revision and for sitting the exam itself, as well as talking to one of our current trainees who's preparing to sit the PACES examination. So hello everyone, uh, this is our podcast talking a bit about the PACES examination, focusing in particular on the ways that individuals revise for PACES. We've got two PACES experts, I'll call ourselves, if that's a, a fair statement, and we've got someone who's due to sit PACES in just over a month's time. So an opportunity to talk a bit about the, the examination itself and, and the experience of uh, of sitting it. So my name's Mark, I'm the Chief Registrar at Airdale. I sat PACES back in February of 2022, I think that's right. So almost two years ago now, I sat paces, and um, yeah, it was a, it was a experience that I passed, but it's uh, still quite traumatic, and I still still have bad nightmares about it. Elliot, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, so I'm Elliot Greenwood. Uh, I'm one of the MT3s, also at Airdale General Hospital. I sat paces April 2023. Yeah, so slightly more recent. Traumatized in the same way that I was, or slightly less so. No, no, definitely traumatised. In fact, uh, when I was preparing for paces, I was I was at Rue Chapel Arton, and one of the rheumatology consultants still had verbatim her presentation of aortic stenosis, and just mm-hmm. mid-ward round started like regurgitating all of the facts <laughs> about aortic stenosis. I think everybody you speak to about paces who are sitting it or have sat it have this sort of PTSD aroma about it. It's actually not that bad, and it does. As, for, as as compared to like part one and part two, I do feel like paces actually makes you a good doctor, makes you kind of fall back mm. into love with medicine a little bit. Um, or that's certainly how I found it anyway. Uh, yeah. What about you? Yeah, no, very much the same. Uh, it's traumatic, but, you know, it's probably the most useful thing that I did. And then that leads us on to Chloe. Uh, so, Chloe, do you want to introduce yourself and talk a bit about why you're here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, so I'm Chloe, I'm currently an IMT2 at Bradford and I'm due to sit paces in about five weeks time. So, so it's, it's all fresh in your mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Terrifying equal measure. How, is it, how are you feeling in the lead up to it now, five weeks away? It's, it's on the calendar now, isn't it? Yeah, the, the panic um, has set in, I think. Like I think because it I've got quite one of the earlier sit like dates like times because yeah. I think the anxious thing about it is that you get given such a big window of when it can possibly be so when you apply mm. you're like should I start doing anything you don't really put much effort into kind of starting the process of like doing much and then all of a sudden someone gives you a date and you're like oh that's quite soon <laughs> um, it's the same for me yeah because I, I remember my, my date was early February and I was one of the first sittings. It was literally a case of, I knew roughly when the window was started revising, so it applied to the window, and all of a sudden it was four weeks away, you know, four weeks away from you. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, better be better be ready for it. And revising is one of the things that's probably the most challenging because you can't revise for it in a way you can revise for other bits and yeah. pieces, um, which say 
very nicely brings us on to Elliot's fantastic project, which is the the Pacers. What what have you called it? The Pacers Workbook? Or? Yeah, it's had a few names. Um, I think I think we're going with Pacers Resource Pack. Uh, is what I settled with. So last year, when I was at, yeah, yeah. So when I was working at Leeds, um, I, I was one of the associate calls tutors, and part of my project or role was to help with Pacers sort of medical education. And I thought, well, I'm sitting Pacers what's the best way for me to revise and it's to create um basically how to pass paces guide really that um mm. i've managed to distribute and um presented last year uh so it, it's basically a walkthrough guide about what the exam is how it's changed this year so from september onwards the exam styles actually changed they've made it used to be you used to have sort of station five used to be two 10 minute sections that was quite mm-hmm. pressured i'm sure mark will remember these stations because you kind of go in you've got to do absolutely everything and then you've got two minutes to present at the end and you've got no idea what's really happening uh, and then they grab you and kind of throw you onto the next next one. So the the new exam format is actually what they've done is they've split those two stations apart and actually had now what they call two consultation stations. So they've extended it by about 20 minutes uh, or 20 minutes per station now rather than 10. And um, talking to one of my friends who's done the new exam format seems much fairer, much more realistic, like when you're seeing a patient in A&E or clerking on one of the admission wards. It's It's basically very much similar to that, I imagine. Um, and they've kind of gone away with the sort of history stations and communication stations in a way in terms of it used to be an ethical scenario and it, they were a little bit forced and then towards the end of it it used to be that awkward sort of viva moment where they'd be like well tell me about the four pillars of you know ethics and things like that and you had to apply it to what you've said and it was a bit silent whereas so I think they've realized that and what they've done now is they've 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 just said that communication stations are purely observational which is kind of a good thing and kind of not a good thing so I guess if you say something you don't have the opportunity to kind of correct yourself or say oh well I said that because of this because there's not that viral element anymore mm-hmm. um but I think a lot of people were kind of sat there in silence towards the end and wasting time so I think I think it does help give you extra time in the consultation stations instead you know, there was a lot of there's a lot of dead space sometimes yeah. in the in the not so much the clinical scenarios stations where actually if anything you're a bit time pressed station five was always incredibly time pressed I I, I remember because still had two minutes to explain you know and talk back but to see a patient examine them and come up with a differential and explain it to a patient in eight minutes was quite a mission and also some of the stuff you know depending on which direction you start in you could easily walk yourself down a wrong direction very quickly so now i'm kind of in a way i'm glad that was probably the most challenging station the clinical examination stations in a way are the things you can prepare for because you know roughly what's going to come up to an extent you can plan ahead whereas when it comes to the the, the communication stations just felt like you were sat there talking forever and the history station i had a very complex history I still can't really remember what it was, but it was some endocrine neoplasia station. And trying to unpick through all the different bits and pieces of that history was 15 minutes, but you were just trying to at any point work out where the actual hard evidence was that was going to give you a diagnosis. So in a way, I'm glad the format's changed, but I appreciate that um, there's probably still some challenges within it. How did you revise the paces? What did you do? What was your main method? 
Um, I think I think for most people it's a mixture of things, isn't it? So you've got to you've got to have an understanding of some of the core information to be able to uh, sort of understand what you're seeing. But mm-hmm. it's it's just going around in the wards, isn't it, with a partner and uh, quizzing each other. And sometimes, obviously, going around with your friends is helpful. But having that person who you don't know as well, like teaming up with them, you know, creating a group on WhatsApp, can also be really quite good because when you are presenting to someone you don't know as well when it's your friends you know you feel much more relaxed but when you're presenting to someone who you might have met a couple of times and stuff um you almost get that kind of exam pressure that you don't want to seem like an idiot in front of this sort of stranger really um but i I was quite fortunate from where i was placed clinically because i I had access to lots of different specialties and wards and things so i got to expose myself to quite a lot but the main um sort of thing i would recommend for people is practice presenting and that's mm. especially under timed conditions and trying to be succinct because that's where your marks are and that's where you know even if you know well the clinical signs if you don't say it then you can't get the points for it um and i, I, I was it... using past tests for that you know you yeah. watch the videos then pause it and pretend that you're giving the answers is yeah. that something that you that's, that's, a, that's essentially what i used to do but one of the things it's a big change from the medical school way of presenting back because actually in medical school you just go oh i there are no peripheral stigmata of cardiovascular disease the jvp is not elevated whereas actually the, what way they asked me to present was um tell me what you think is going on but only use your relevant findings so you had to be quite succinct with the information that you gave so if you had any you know i'll give one of my examples which is a patient with a, a heart valve replacement i you know that said right there's a midline stenotomy scar in a patient who has signs of x y and z marfan's come but it was exactly but and this patient you know has has allowed s2 that sounds metallic therefore i think this is likely an aortic valve replacement that's metallic and actually that, that was all the time you really had because actually what they want to do is they want to be asking you loads of questions to really test your knowledge on the subject matter what you need to do is very quickly explain what you found and they give you a differential that's reasonably concise i think one of the pressures that people feel in paces is that you've just got to show your old knowledge right from the second you stop doing the examination and actually they will lead you certainly not my examination they will lead you to where they want to lead you and actually that'll often be the place where the examiner is more comfortable so you're more likely to get a reasonable response if you start talking about you know aortic valve area gradients and valve appearances on echo the person who's examining you is not a cardiologist they're not going to know about that either so actually you need to let them lead you to a certain extent after you do your feeding back but feeding back was probably when i finally sat down with a colleague was the biggest thing i think for me have you done much of the going on the wards then and traveling the wards Chloe to get that experience yet yeah a little bit um probably more on it like this last week or so since Christmas has finished but um obviously we've just been in but it's actually been quite good because the strikes have been on which has been quite um, nice to freeze you up a bit yeah there's not been that many people around as well so patients aren't too fed up of being um examined at the minute I think Sometimes they you get the same patient that gets um, assessed every minute of every day, don't you? Um, no, particularly when, when they get an interesting finding, they end up on a paces group, and all of a sudden, yeah. every 10 minutes, there's some IMT2 rocking up with a stethoscope going, can I have a listen to your member, please? It sounds really yeah. interesting. Yeah. yeah, kind of, you know, almost don't want to have that. I mean, I, I'm trying to think about how long I revised for. It was probably about four to six weeks. Yeah. Roughly about, I don't know, what about you, Elliot? Was that roughly the same? Yeah, so I I've, I probably spent four to six four to six weeks as well. Um, mm. 
I must admit, I probably left it a little bit later than probably what I should have done. But um, I had I paired it with some good people who were very much more motivated than me, so it forced me to kind of get get my bum into the gear really. And there's some really good. The other thing to say is there are some really good resources out there. So I, you know, back when the Leeds website was active, that was one of the websites I went to. But there was also plenty of other resources available online. There was I remember a YouTube series by some nhs trust that was talking about paces examinations it just showed you stuff and people have made youtube channels of really interesting clinical findings and listening to murmurs was one of the things like my hearing's not great so i can't hear murmurs very clearly so if i could sit and listen to an aortic stenosis for five minutes and really appreciate the change in the gradient and how it sounded it made it much more likely and i, I think those youtube videos are still there where it's literally just a sonogram of someone listening to aortic stenosis and just playing it in a loop over and over and you can see the that crescendo decrescendo pattern which helps you spot it and actually those things particularly for some of the neurological signs be able to see them on a patient through youtube i actually found youtube to be quite a useful resource yeah i'm not gonna lie i I'm, i kind of sat there uh some nights just kind of in the dark with my headphones in listening to your heart sounds it's a bit it's a bit creepy when you think about it now isn't it but yeah i've done that i've done that yeah, exactly. And as I about examining patients who have those findings that are interesting and, and relevant, but it's going in blind as well. I think that's your thing. If you've been going in blind of your patients, Chloe, do you, do you know what they've got before you go and see them? Trying to. I think sometimes it's a bit difficult because if you've, for example, if you're, you're walking onto a ward to ask if there's anyone clinically suitable, I think this week maybe less because there's not been as many people in. Some people are just like, oh, yeah, we've got this person with this. Yeah, it's like, don't say that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you've got, you've got yeah. to leave with a caveat, like, don't tell yeah. me. Don't yeah. tell me it is, but tell me, but I want to know if it's interesting. Yeah. 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 Um, no, exactly, Max, you, you don't want to go in primed. I think that's one of the things that's bit, I mean, but there's certain biases. I mean, we could talk a little bit about stations in a little while, but there's certain biases you will carry when you yeah. go to certain stations. You almost kind of want to not be open to them, but not fall into the traps that they lead. I'm not sure how you know how that reflects with you, Elliot. But I there was a certain there were cases that we had. There's one case I'll kind of talk about in a non-specific way a little bit later, where they were evidently trying to send you in one direction with the patient, but in reality it wasn't what you thought it was. And if you were very close-minded and you were just looking for an answer, you'd go straight to it. And actually, paces is about more than one information strand helping you get to the actual diagnosis. And actually, the other point I should mention on that is not just for diagnosis, but sometimes for cause and the trigger to some of these things. So if there's a patient who's got um, reduced sensation in their lower limbs, it's looking on the fingers for signs of diabetes and saying, I think this is peripheral neuropathy related to diabetes. That extra bit seemed to really kind of stand you in good stead when it came to the follow-up questions and help the examiner assess you as being a competent person during the sitting of, of paces. Is there anything else on the book that we need to mention, Elliot? Because I'm aware we haven't really had a chance to talk about it yet, but your, no, your fantastic yeah, so, resource, Pat. So so, so effectively, um, I actually had a list of resources that I've pulled up. And and what, what I realised as well is I used to listen to, I have no shares or uh, no sort of investment in this podcast, but I, I thought it was a really good podcast. There's a pre-paces podcast. Mm-hmm. So I used to I used to listen to that on my drive into to work and you know I commute 30, 40 minutes. And actually that's a really good podcast, which is kind of maybe one of the ideas why Mark is doing this, because obviously it's useful for people when commuting. 
and then there was like DVL guidance and then I think um, Cases for Pacers is a book that everyone seems to use as well. Is it Cases uh, for Pacers or Pacers? Yeah, that book. Yeah, Cases, Cases for Pacers, Pacers by <laughs> Stephen Hall. And then yeah. there was the other book as well, which is a bit more in-depth if you want more detail, which is um, Pacers uh, for the MRCP by, I think, Tim Hall. But I, I don't think you need to actually go buy these books. So if you're a BMA member, you know, I'd recommend just going on the BMA library and actually just downloading the ebook version no, of no, it. That, that's literally, so I, I did exactly that. I just, uh, I was a BMA member at the time, still am, yeah. and just went on the online library. And actually, there's a lot of really good resources. I think they've got that Cases for Pacers book on there. Or they, they might not have that edition, but they've got one that's recent. And actually, that's, you know, a great, if you can access it on your phone, which normally you can do, you can actually save yourself a a bob or two yeah mine's been donated down by many people that have passed paces over the last few years but as well but as well for you good luck yeah. yeah i must admit so the other thing as well people always ask about is do i need to go on a paces course and mm. i have mixed feelings about this because I, I personally didn't do a paces course um because of just the financial cost because they're they're probably now about maybe 1300 pounds or something like that about, the, the london ones are one and a half yeah wow yeah. and that's that's a lot of money isn't it really when you think about well, it's it I think you, salary isn't it you have yeah, to yeah. you have to you, you can claim it back through health education england but i think you pay for it up front first and then have to claim it back afterwards and there's a bit of a delay is that correct chloe yeah so it's all like that but i think they have started to they've either they've slashed the study budget so um i think it's something like 500 pound per year is roughly what they will offer to someone obviously you won't hope you won't be using much of your study budget previously potentially um but like for me for example i did my als last year so because they needed redoing um so that cost 500 pounds so i already claimed for that so then there's the there's the caveat that maybe they wouldn't fund all of a course so i do think you have to be quite cautious that they may not cover them now mm. I, mean, I, I, I didn't do a course either actually that's one of the things that but, you know, I, I ended up doing a very brief course at Leeds that was being offered where it was just a, it was offered by the deanery where I just did the morning. And it was actually literally the day before I sat the exam. And actually, I don't, the paces outside of proving that I was comfortable and ready to go ahead. I don't think I necessarily learned anything new. I just felt more confident. And actually, confidence is important because you don't want to be there as a shaking mess and unable to comprehend what's going on from anxiety and from nerves. But in reality, I knew what I already knew. And I don't think courses like that necessarily that provide massive amounts of benefit, so to speak, if you're willing to revise in a kind of structured way, you can work your way around the rather large expense. But, you know, it's understandable if you're struggling with the content or you're working somewhere where you don't have a colleague you can work alongside. But in reality, I think you can get around it quite easily. The thing is about paces and any other exam is they have to standardise it some way, shape or form, because how are they going to compare you to, say, Mark or me? And yeah, they have yeah. to keep some of the questions and some of the core themes the same to allow a comparison. So that that kind of works in your favour because you can kind of kind of guess a little bit what might come up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think that one of the big things is when it comes to a heart station, in reality, it's either going to be a valve replacement or a valve that's damaged. It's unlikely it's going to be an awful else um now there are there are i know there are some outliers <laughs> but gen generally speaking that's the way it's going to be some valve that's that so valve that is currently damaged or some valve that's been replaced and outside of that it's quite beyond size subversive to extracardia 
which are reasonably rare. We actually struggled to get patients who had good signs of that. Did you have dextrocardia? Yeah, I did. So yeah. um, I. It's actually quite talk, hard to pick up. You you were talking about uh, bias, and I guess when you think about it, you think about going into your rest station. You're like, oh, it's going to be you know someone who's pursed lips, barrel chest, COPD, something like that. Yeah, yeah. And I thought I'm going to have you know this old old bloke in my in my cardiac station. He's going to have you know a t- t- metal heart valve or something like, that, or a good <laughs> ejection systolic murmur. Yeah. And I go in and I see this relatively young girl and instantly I started to panic thinking oh bloody hell what's this and you start thinking well you know is it is it some sort of Marfans and stuff so we're getting you to do all the weird and wonderful tests you know where you get them to grip around your wrist and and, and I remember asking her to check her arm arm spam with I was like can you put your arms out and she ended up like knocking some of the um some of the stuff on the on the trolley over and the examiners were laughing and she was laughing I thought oh god this is going this is going to pot this but um, and then I examined her initially, I was like, this, this seems like a completely normal cardiovascular examination, because uh, one thing is to know is they, they can sometimes, if they have a patient drop out or whatever, they can just suddenly have, have, a, normal patient. have yeah. a normal patient. And that, I think, is much harder, because you need to be so good clinically that you ha- need to have the confidence to be like, this is a normal patient, mm-hmm. and that can be quite hard. And then they were pressing me quite hard about the apex beat, and obviously because she was a young girl it was quite difficult to tell um because of breast tissue and i remember thinking well you know and they were like well, where was it loudest and it was louder in the aortic region but i had to back it up and be like well she definitely didn't have a murmur um but because i said it was louder over region they kind of was like oh you know what you know what do you think about lungs and well, lungs are clear and then i think because they mentioned about lungs and louder heart and so and like something kind of clicked in my head and i was like oh is it kind of like um you know dextrocardia and bronchiectasis you know with filters and things like that and luckily she didn't have any of them bronchiectasis but they were like yeah yeah so this is dextrocardia and and you know then start asking me loads of weird and wonderful questions so it is it is sometimes weird that you do get these weird and wonderful patients and the other thing to realize as well is they aren't always um patients or an outpatient because usually you think they're going to get patients who they see in clinic regularly so stable patients which you shouldn't you should get stable patients but you know I have had it where uh, I've gone in and there's a patient with heparin bruises from where they've been getting their prophylaxis VTE and they've got a cannula in situ and a medical wristband and they've pulled them from the ward and I guess because they've got a leaking oozing cannula it just adds a bit of complexity to your examination because you're not expecting that kind of thing Mm -hmm. so don't be shocked if you go in and actually it's you know someone who has a bruise over their right artery because they've recently had like an angio or something like that and you find it difficult to feel the pulse and uh, you know that was something that happened to me as well so you've got to then go up to the brachial or feel both sides um it's, it's like mark said earlier it's, it's trying to remain confident and calm and collected in those kind of situations and that'll just come with practice i think one of the real challenges is your bias, I think. And that's the, the certain strategies I had. So when it came to the cardiac stations, I say, is there a scar in the, is there a midline stenotomy or some scar in the chest? I mean, I think a valve has been replaced. Because if if I see a big scar, it's either a cabbage or it's a valve replacement. Those are the two things that are going to happen. And ischemic heart disease is not going to show up in paces as a lone finding by and large. Although, yeah, I, I know there are cases of midline stenotomies for ischemic heart disease that have appeared in patients. By and large, when you go in, when you do your kind of initial assessment from the end of the bed, you actually get a really valuable moment to go, right, I, you'll normally see something reasonably obvious 
or see nothing at all. And if you see nothing at all, it's either something that hasn't been fixed or something that isn't really sinister in a sense, but it's something that someone hasn't had to cut out straight away. Or it's a really obvious pathology because there's a big scar or there's something that really stands out you from stands out to you from the end of the bed. So when it comes to respiratory cases, talk about lobectomies, pneumonectomies, those cases are gonna have a scar. You're gonna see the scar that's gonna lead you straight down that route. Can't fall down entirely, but you can already start going, right, I need to really make sure I have a proper feel for that trachea. I need to really listen into that chest and see if that is not, you know, trying to pick out these things because you enter that bias, you can confirm it, but not to fall straight into the trap of, of doing it. It's more so, in the respiratory, gastro and cardiac stations. You can do it in the neurology station as well, where you just get a sense from in the bed of what this is likely to be. And then as soon as you've got that idea of what it might be, start honing in on the points that are going to really confirm it for you. But those are some of the, you know, the biases and sort of ways you can work your way around it. But yeah, so I'm just trying to think, if there's anything else in regards to biases or any of the biases that you identified in yourself, Elliot, when it came to the exam? Um not not so much bias it's very easy to miss sort of small details that could help you massively so uh one of my nearest stations with this woman and um she had increased tone in her arm brisk reflexes so i was thinking oh this is all up a motor neurone is it something like ms and and actually she had a patch on her left arm and I, I i i commented on the patch as well but i didn't actually go back and look at exactly what the drug was and if mm. i had seen it it was like a parkinsonian patch and you would have got the diagnosis from that regardless yeah. of the clinical findings and everything else so you know it's and people people worry about the hawk examiners so people always say they have like a dove or a hawk examiner so the dove are usually yeah. the nice examiners that kind of not not really give you much information because they can't but obviously just are a pleasant person to present to yeah. whereas then you sometimes get that examiner that kind of as we were saying earlier who just like and then what and then what and are you mm -hmm. sure and kind of really kind of put you into a bit of a corner um and it's trying not to get rattled by them really no definitely and I, I generally speaking i had most my most of my examiners are quite quiet and just let me get on with what i need to do but there were certainly a couple who were kind of, you know, quite diving and really wanted to get you, get you to talk about the facts of the case. But actually, that's when the confidence comes in and the skill in in presenting sort of comes out. And yeah, and your ability to kind of spot some of the subtlety. So one of the one of the cases I had was a an abdominal patient with a device, not a kidney transplant, but had a scar that one would associate as being kidney transplant. So one of those scars and left iliac fossa a fullness in the left iliac fossa, but no other features consistent with the diabetes. And the examination was much firmer than if you'd examined a, a renal transplant. And actually putting those little bits together pulled you away from the renal transplant because at the end of the bed, the buyer said, hey, look, there's a scar in my left iliac fossa. There's a fullness to that area. Surely this must be a renal transplant. When you go looking around, there's no signs of any fistulas that have been healed. There's no signs of any central venous catheters. There's no signs of diabetes, there's no sign of any other examinable disease, but it's just a scar down here and actually that's a device and you've put it together through that. So the biases can help, but you've got to say interrogate them properly and some of the small subtlety. So what he ended up having was a big scar on his back from a, another operation and actually this was a device related to that. Piece it all together, you could actually put these answers together by those little small details. 
So hopefully that's been of some use. Chloe, is there any questions in the lead up to your PACES exam that you've got for, for me and Elliot as people who have sat the exam successfully? I think my main worry at this point is actually in present presenting. I think I think it's something that we don't do very often um, mm. because just we just get told to kind of crack on and do it and like no one really ever kind of assesses you or quizzes you which is something that I'm going to try and you know get people like do with consultants and regs and try and be like present some uh, like a patient I see on a wardrobe for example and just go through that process you need some more experience in having done the examination I think that's probably and with your colleagues because the one thing that's interesting when I sat down with one of my colleagues we we fed back and it took about 10 minutes and it was all great and we all felt really reassured and then someone had sat pace as one of the acute medical registrars at Leeds sat me down and said right let's do it properly and when you got to six minutes it was grill time and it was that took too long you, that was three minutes your hands are all over the place one thing I was told is put your hands behind your back don't be distracted look at the person be very clear and you know don't waffle on focus on the things you thought were relevant and talk about them and be really quite specific um, but it, that's practice and I think one of the things that I did was sit and watch a YouTube video of someone examining a patient and I think past test is a similar thing where you sit there and you go right I've, I've watched this examination these are the findings I'm now going to practice presenting it and the presentation needs to take no more than about 30 seconds to a minute at most but it's getting it down concisely and thinking how do I present it and medical school teaches you an interesting bias because you medical school you talk about everything because you've got no massive time. Yeah, that was my main question actually about whether, like you mentioned that that was that Parkinson's patch, um, the med medical patch for that other patient Elliot. But actually, whether you would, whether you mentioned that, I don't know. And you find that you know, like do you, you do go through every single positive finding and then negative. It's just what kind of the every positive, not every negative. That's generally what I did. If there's a positive finding, I'd mention it. But even mentioning it very quickly. Go on, Elliot. Your your turn. Yeah. So 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 yeah, I I did mention the patch and um and and then the and this is why I said about the detail because then he said, well, what what was the patch for? And I was stumped because I actually I clocked the patch, but I didn't. I, I think because I was trying to look at the whole picture, I didn't then think what what patches on her, like what is the drug name, and that was an error on my heart behalf. Like, um, so there are these things that you know you are allowed to make some small mistakes, you are allowed to miss certain clinical signs because at the end of the day, it's you versus those two consultants. So those two consultants will go in and they'll examine the patient blind themselves, and then agree between themselves what is an acceptable level and what what they should what they found and what they think that you should find and so it's really kind of uv them one of the best tips i ever got taught is actually um treat it as if you're their senior and they're your medical students on the ward round and you're doing it as a teaching session so you're you're seeing... well, it towards the instructors the um examiners you yeah yeah no yeah because because what what it means it, it switches switches the dynamic and actually you kind of fall into this like oh teaching role and come across as enthusiastic so yeah I was told the same thing as Mark you know eye contact hands behind so you're not like you know gesticulating. <laughs> gesticulating um and obviously when you're referring to the patient refer to them with respect like you know this lady this gentleman not just them or you know it's um <laughs> it's I the think, patient it you know people say stupid things when they're stressed don't they and um I think 
if you kind of go in and think okay I'm teaching these people about this patient it kind of switches your mindset and then you're like oh and this person clearly has clubbing which could be a sign of you know lung cancer it could be a sign of pulmonary fibrosis you know the in the in the that kind of helps you and they will steer you a certain direction and if you are going completely off piece they will interrupt you um but that's the benefit of maybe being short and sweet and holding some information back because then actually gives them opportunity to give you ask you the questions for the marks and also doesn't give you enough rope to hang yourself so keep things short and sweet positive findings so you can say you know on examination the gentleman has club fingers and findings spiritual crackles this could be consistent with an idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis there are other differentials but this is my most likely if you can't start throwing out multiple differentials some examiners will say what is the differential like we'll pin you to it and at that point sometimes if you're unsure if it's mitral regurg versus a, a, a you know aortic stenosis because um, they're both you know systolic murmurs you just have to sometimes flip the coin and go with what you think clinically is the most relevant you can get you know the aortic stenosis might get a jail free card i'm sure mark knows this is galavardin phenomenon so when you hear an aortic murmur in the mitral region you can actually hear the re the murmur throughout all of the chest or the precordium so you know you could say you know this most consistent ejection systolic murmur with galavardin phenomenon i can hear it in the mitral region i'd want an echo to confirm you know that that is reasonable because you know you don't you don't have x-ray eyes and at the same time i don't think they want the, the list of differentials needs to be reasonable but not long and i think that's the, the trap that people fall into is you've got to sit there and list off every single potential diagnosis of you know of lower respiratory coarse crackles you don't you just have to be able to give a reasonable suggestion that's where some of the little bits then of that patient as you start to tick them together so you know talking about the um heart valve sort of situation if it's an old person in their 80s and it's probably just senile aortic stenosis because actually if it's mitral regurgitation there'd be other features more consistent where you know might be atrial fibrillation you can you can explain some of this stuff away and lead yourself towards a reasonable answer i think the challenge is trying to do that when you're in the middle of the examination and trying to make sure your list of differentials is not only probably three or four at max but makes appropriate sense of the situation that you're finding yourself in but you can talk your way around it if you say look i hear a systolic murmur i can't be quite clear what it is i think it's probably a mitral regurgitation but i'm ordering an echo as they mark that's a tick because even though if you're not 100 sure your management of that is appropriate and you're not expected to be perfect i think that's one of the realities of of paces is that you aren't going to be perfect not everyone scores 100 you're going to have some bits where you fall fall down I will add the caveat as well that all the best doctors pass second time. Oh, I'm no good, and I, uh, I pass yeah. first time. So, so, <laughs> so pe people put a lot of pressure on passing first time. I know it's a financial cost, but at the end of the day, it's, it's not the end of the world. It's one of those exams that, a bit like driving yeah, testing. I know, I know a lot of people that, have, that didn't pass it first time. I think that just there's no rep, there's no representation of who they are as a doctor. Uh, and, and the nerves will get to you on the day. And yeah. I think I see, you know, some very good doctors I've worked with who have failed first, you know, first time around, second time around have failed. Often it's nerves. It's a scary exam because it feels, you know, we've all been out of medical school for at least sort of four or five years and it's going back into the OSCEs, but it, it's your own money on the line. It's your progression in your career on the line. It feels much more consequential. And actually, the sooner you can relax into it, and you do outside of the first station or two, when you're onto your third or fourth station and your mind starts to calm, that's when you really start to be at your peak. What you don't want to be is 
throwing yourself off from anxiety or nerves. Yeah, it's an example. If you fail it, the world does not end. There's no cataclysmic event that means that you cannot progress. And there are also plenty of people who still continue into ST4 without having paces. It's less common these days because of the IMT3 step. But there are, you know, there are ST4s around who have not passed paces. It's not common for that to happen. And it's to uh, also if you if station goes horribly wrong for whatever reason, just like put it back in mind, and go on to the next one. Those five minutes in between are really useful, especially if you are smart with your time. You can you can write your own clocking sheet, and and then you, when you when when you used to be a history station, for instance, you used to be able to just go in with your clocking sheet on a bit of paper, and then write it out as if you that. That's I think why it probably made it a bit too easy. But for the consultation stations, I don't see why you couldn't do the same thing, so you're not missing anything in terms of social history. You know, these are the extra things yeah, that people yeah. might miss. Um, yeah, that is true. You've got to that point because you passed part one and part two. You must be of a good standard from an academic standpoint. It's about the examination and the presenting back, which is often the thing that people get most worried about. In reality, are things you can work on. You can come up with schemes in your head. I very much, you know, I'm a bit of a schematic person. I like to know what I'm doing in each situation. And I had very much in my head respiratory examination. I walk in, I look for a scar, no scar. Then I'm going down this route where these diseases are most likely. There's a scar, then I'm thinking about these and looking for these things in the fingers and looking for these things in the neck. You can work that stuff out. You can turn it back into a logic game. But it's about a about keeping your head, which is is difficult. I think most people struggle with to an extent. But then the feeding back and not waffling. I think one of the big traps people fall into is just talking. And actually, you need to stay on task. Don't walk yourself into a problem. So I've seen I've seen people do that as well when I've helped out some of the um teaching some of the imt2s they walk themselves into problems they make more work for themselves by saying oh you know for this aortic stenosis i do a toe and someone goes why would you do a toe what valve gradient would you need for a toe people just making more work themselves keep it simple you try not to come out with some weird and wacky diagnoses i had a colleague that i went around with and um bless him we were on a cardiology ward and it was a relatively young patient and actually, it was just a very, very simple, you know, mitral regurgitation. And he ended up saying, oh, I think he's got tetralogy of fallow and down syndrome. And, you know, understandably, <laughs> the patient was quite offended. Um, so it's yeah, uh, keep it simple. Yeah, keep it keep it simple, um, you know, and it's OK to not know have all the answers all the time. It's, it's about having a safe plan. And that's what they're looking for. Are you going to be safe as a registrar? I think that's one of the things, isn't it? It's, it's you, you they look at it as this is the person who potentially if I'm on call am I going to rely on this person to look after a patient so you want to seem reasonable and intelligent with your answers so if you hear a murmur saying you get an echocardiogram that's what most people are going to say that's what they want you to do I see no signs of effective endocarditis great that's important because that's relevant to the murmur it's it's doing things right having a logical and safe framework is there anything about paces we should talk about? I'd say I think we've covered most of the main bits and pieces, really. Um, most people do well. And even if you don't pass, it's not a reflection on you as a person. But everyone develops their own technique. And we've passed, so it must be possible. <laughs> Is there anything else, Chloe? Any other questions to mind? No, I don't think so. Thank you. Perfect. All right, no, thank you guys for your time. We'll leave it there. And uh, if you are sitting pace anytime soon, 
good luck. It does get better. Life does get better. And I've got my MRC piece sat on my wall above me, proudly in a, in position as a uh, an homage to my success. And say so I'm sure you feel the same, Elliot. It's great to have. It's great to pass it and to have that day when you get called, when you get that email coming through in your email that you've passed. It's a, a sensation unlike any other. So something I take a lot of pride in. Yeah, no, it's, it certainly is. And um, I mean, my, mine's still in the drawer in the tube, unfortunately. <laughs> I've got it <laughs> here. So, I, mean, I, know, I know this is going out on podcast, but, you know, I've still got my got my MRCP certificate literally sat above me. I'm yeah. there. And because um, yeah, I did reasonably well, I've still got my email saved with my report out. So I'm, yeah, very happy with it all. It was very, it's worth the pain. <laughs> yeah. It, once, once you've done it, yeah, I, th- I think no one's no one really matters or care how you get there as long as you get there and i wish you all the best of luck chloe with your exam in five weeks time good luck let us know how you get on (laughs) (laughs) no we'll do a podcast in six months time and say look at chloe now she's passed yeah she's med wrenching she's doing really well yeah yeah thank you guys thanks for your time thanks Thank you for listening to The Airway, West Yorkshire Internal Medicine Teaching Collaborative Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it and learned something new. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to our podcast on your favourite platform. Have a great day.